1933, a young man called Patrick Lee Fermor set off to walk from the Hook of Holland to Constantinople, or Istanbul. And about 80 years later, in 2011, another young man called Nick Hunt set out to recreate the journey, which Patrick Lee Fermor made famous in books published much later, called A Time of Gifts, Between the Woods and the Water and Broken Road. Nick Hunt undertook his journey, walking from Holland to Istanbul, and published a book entitled Walking the Woods and the Water, which recounts his journey. Welcome to Intrepid Times. This is Nathan Thomas. Looking forward to interviewing Nick Hunt. Thank you again for, for joining me. I'm really excited to talk to you. Very nice to be here. I've been absolutely loving the book. It's um, getting better and better as it's going on. Like Really exciting to read. But a thought occurred to me. Which is that this is a journey that you did, what, 2011, 12, right? So it's quite a few years yeah, ago now. It is. And it was published, what, two years ago, one year ago? Yeah, it was published in 2014. And you're a young man, so this is quite a large percentage of your life ago that this was uh, experienced. So how is it talking about something that was, you know, so long ago? Well, it's. I mean, that tends to happen, a um, this process where you make everything into a story. And obviously that happens with the book, because um, I had to turn the journey into a narrative in order to, to make a book that was readable and enjoyable. And I think that happens more and more as, as I add layer upon layer of memory on top of that. And I think that actually comes quite close to what Patrick Lee Fermore did with his books and he was separated from his journey by four decades rather than four years um, but he kind of reimagined large sections of his journey that happened so long ago and I can see exactly how that starts to happen so I still I still remember it clearly but I'm very aware that I'm I'm putting my memory is putting a spin on everything looking back and as you mentioned that spin that Paddy put on his memories and a real layer of magic to it is that something you've kind of been willing to let yourself embrace well i think i think i'm not sure you have a choice often because your your brain does forget certain things it forgets the boring stuff um often thankfully it forgets all the bad stuff you know the pain and the frustration and the the, the monotony that that happens on a long journey um and you tend to remember the highlights so yeah, I think it, I think it happens of its own accord to some extent. Sure. The journey itself. How long exactly did it take you from from A to B, from Holland to Istanbul, or Constantinople, as Paddy always called it? He did. Yeah, romantic, romantic insistence. So it was about eight months, seven and a half. Yeah, about seven and a half months was the total. Okay, and then at the end, I guess you you just hopped to fly back home and, and started writing the thing. So what I did is, yeah, I took um, meticulous notes throughout the whole process to the extent where I was, I, I could hardly walk. I was kind of stopping every every 10 minutes to write something down. And, of course, most of that, thankfully, didn't go in the book because um, looking back on the notes, there was, there was huge amounts of completely unnecessary detail that was fascinating to me, you know, on a certain road in the middle of Germany but would be of no interest to anyone reading it. Um, but I came back with, with notebooks and notebooks, all 
filled out. My handwriting got smaller and smaller as it went on. So it's kind of this tiny little spider scroll by the end. Patrick um, kept leaving his notebooks the... behind and getting them, them stolen. Did, did anything like that happen to you? Um, actually, actually I, was, I was very mindful of that. Funnily enough, it happened on the very first day. Um, so I, the, 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 when I got to um, Rotterdam, I, I looked in my pocket and the, the book had gone. And I retraced my steps, couldn't find it. And obviously I'd lost a whole day's worth of notes, but that was nothing compared to what he lost. But it was probably a very, very good lesson to learn early. Yeah, a good thing to happen quickly. Yes. I got the sense that, I mean, this is quite clear, I think, that the beginning of your journey, particularly in, in Holland, was very concrete and, and overpasses, and you had the, the major problem with your, with your legs. But as, as it got on and, and developed, the, the magic of Patrick's journey seemed to be very much alive in yours. I almost found the books got closer and feel uh, the longer yours went on. It was, it was definitely harder than I anticipated. That um, I learned that very quickly. Again, after just three days, I was I was pretty crippled um, and laid up for the best part of a week. But as that 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 pain kind of burned away through the weeks, um, I definitely found I found myself falling in love with the process of walking quite quickly. I mean, at first it was, it is very frustrating, even if you set out knowing that you're, you're traveling slowly and that's the whole purpose of it. It can be intensely frustrating if you're not used to it, just how slow foot travel is. Uh, and I think one of the early lessons I had to learn was that this was the point of what I was doing. It, it wasn't a, a hurdle I had to overcome, getting places slowly. This was the reason I was doing it. There's a lot of anti-car propaganda at the start of the book, which which I enjoy. <laughs> yeah, I really, I really felt that. You resent them hugely, the, the smugness that they travel. About almost halfway through, or I think exactly perhaps halfway way through the journey, your your girlfriend flew to Vienna uh, to meet you there, and you wrote that the journey that had taken you, I think, three months on foot took her, you know, barely three hours. Yeah, you don't want to think too much about it. It's, it really does your head in. Um, it, yeah, it did seem... I mean, the funny thing is that after quite a short space of time, walking begins to feel like the, like the, the natural way to travel, which, of course, it is. But we forget that so much. Um, so travelling any faster feels very strange. Um, it happened in South, in, in sort of South Germany. Um, someone I was staying with said, oh, I'm going to a New Year's Eve party, it's in the next town. It happened to be on my route. So kind of against my better judgment, I, I said, okay, I'll, I'll have a lift with you there. So I fast forwarded one day's walk into about half an hour. And I was, I'd only been walking about a month and I was amazed at how horrible it felt to be in a car felt completely disorientated, couldn't work out where anything was, um, had no idea what direction I was going in, which was something I've been aware of for the past few weeks very intensely. Um, and, and by the time we got there, I was really quite upset. Didn't, I didn't enjoy it at all. <laughs> kind of like cheating, right? Yeah, I mean, it felt like cheating. Um, 
but it was also just the kind of physical speed of travel when you're not used to it is, is completely bewildering. As you progressed through the journey, particularly in fact when you got uh, through Hungary and, and into Romania, uh, even, even a bit before that, it seemed the car menace sort of faded into the background and mountains and, and fields be- became the, the challenge. Yeah, the challenge became less about navigating past infrastructure, which a lot of Germany was trying to get around roads and industrial estates. And from that point, I mean, really from once I got to Romania, it was much more about the mountains and the forests, which is, uh, from, you know, so it's, it's a much more enjoyable type of challenge. It's, it's a lot easier to be challenged by something beautiful. I like that. Much easier to be challenged by, by something beautiful. Because you really, you really did seem a lot happier, at least the tone from, from when I read the book. Um, in, in these more wild parts than when you were wrestling with, with infrastructure and, and all of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that came through in the writing. Um, definitely I got happier the more I went on. And it's something, it's partly hitting my stride. It was partly realizing that this process of walking actually worked and I was moving uh, and I had got some distance behind me. But it was also very much about the landscape. And, I mean, I definitely mentioned this in the book, that one of the big shifts I noticed was was crossing the border to Romania. And for whatever reason, feeling suddenly a lot happier that I'd got there. Something about the, the culture and the slowness of the pace of life and the small villages and the very rural life. And people seem to have more time of day. Everything just slows down. And that suits a walker very well. So that was that was definitely one of the borders that I, I started noticing my kind of quality of daily life improving from that point on. You took the luxury of about a week's holiday at the start of Romania. I loved your um your contrast. It was just like Patrick, except with a with a few more joints and slightly fewer domestic servants. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was definitely travelling. That was obviously one of the big changes is that he, from Hungary onwards, he stayed with a succession of of counts and archdukes and and Hungarian aristocrats of all descriptions. And I obviously visited the same places, but that's an entire class of society that's disappeared now um, because they were liquidated under, under communism. So the people I stayed with were very, yeah, a very different demographic. But interestingly, often with, with very similar opinions, very similar stories, very similar beliefs about the position of their country relating to their neighbours. So there were lots of kind of, uh, yeah, in terms of people's characters, there was a lot of similarity, but the, the circumstances of life changed. One of the things related to that that you were very conscious of was that the contrasting prejudices that you'd hear from people. And as, as you just said, these were often the exact same things that were told to, to Patrick 80 years earlier. Yeah, they were. They were. I mean, Eastern Europe obviously has a reputation for being fairly tribal. And I think those attitudes have persisted. They've survived 50 years of communism where they were all ostensibly on the same side. Uh, they've survived the war. They've survived all kinds of things, these very entrenched parochial attitudes towards 
what's over the border. So just as Patrick was told, I was told, you know, by Slovakians, don't go to Hungary, it's very dangerous, you know, the people are terrible. Hungarians said the same thing about Romanians, Romanians said the same things about about Hungarians and Bulgarians and whoever was next. Everyone said the same thing about Turks. And each time it was proved almost comically wrong because, as I hope the book makes clear, I was met with, with enormous hospitality and kindness by everyone, really everyone I encountered. You were, that's one of the things I wanted to, to talk to you about, actually, because um, obviously Patrick's book is called, the first book is called A Time of Gifts, and, and he, like yourself, experienced amazing hospitality from people. Um, and for Patrick, you can sort of romanticize it and say, oh, wow, it was a different time, but you proved that that spirit of, of kindness to travelers is still something that's very much alive. Well, good. That was really... That was really what I hoped to find. Um, I think we, we there is a tendency to see the modern world as as less kind and uh, less hospitable than the past. And what I found was, yeah, this is this is not true at all. People people's circumstances have changed, but their their basic desire to kind of look after people hasn't. Although having said that, I don't know. I don't know what it would be like doing doing a similar journey today with the migrant crisis, with all the borders that have gone up, pictures of razor wire fences and, and dogs and guards. I mean, I suspect that people are still decent, but there's, there's definitely now there's, I'm sure it would be harder than four years ago. I, I almost almost wept, wept uh, silently when you, you made a comment when you had to get a bit of uh, medical medical care, I think, was it in, in Germany? And you, you said, well, thank God for the EU passport. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. Well, we'll see. We'll see about that. We'll see what happens there. Right? Well, in addition to the, to the massive gap of history that separated you and, and Patrick Mufirma, one of the other major things was, of course, uh, technology, and you seem to have made amazing use of uh, websites like Couchsurfing to meet people. Um, part of your trip was uh, funded by, by a crowdsourcing campaign as well, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Um, that was that was the got me enough money to, to do the walk. Do, were you like plugged in when, when you did the walk? Were you, were you online? Did you still feel like you were connected to, to the wider world, or was this kind of more of a of a pilgrimage, a, a disappearing act? Well, I was, I kind of picked and choosed, I suppose, with technology. I did, obviously, I used the internet to set up couch surfing contacts, and I had a phone, I had a smartphone that was, I mean, working half the time. Um, just, just, that's the way it is, and, and I didn't always want to be charging it. But I found... I think I found quite quickly that it was the couch surfing was amazing, but it, it does add a restriction that you have to plan ahead. You have to tell people when you're coming, and then if you change your plans, you've got to you know, you've got to contact four or five people and, and and shift everything back by a day. And so that got I didn't want to be spending half my time trying to find a Wi-Fi signal to send messages to people. So it got a lot. It got a lot easier when the weather got warmer and I didn't have to rely so much on, on finding people to give me a bed for the night. Um, I bought a tent in Budapest 
and that gave me a great amount of freedom. And I think as I went on, I used technology less and less, partly because people got more hospitable and I could, you know, I'd be offered things by people more spontaneously. And partly because the weather was warmer, I could sleep outside, um, the days got longer, and everything just got a bit more easy to do. Certainly setting out in, in, in Germany in the winter, I was quite conscious of the fact it got dark at four o'clock and I, I needed beds in, in, that, in, that, in that time. But also, I mean, with technology, I didn't, I didn't use GPS or anything like that. I kind of made a fairly conscious decision that I didn't want to do that. Um, I preferred rely more on maps and asking people the way. And a, a similar conscious decision you, you made in addition to not using GPS was to kind of not, kind of, well, obviously the route was, was planned in your retracing stance, but to not overly plan it, to not overly, overly research, to let things sort of unfold like you're reading, reading a book for the first time. Yeah, yeah, that was a very conscious decision. Um, I didn't want to know too much because I thought it would spoil. I was trying to replicate as best I could. Um, Patrick's kind of wide-eyed, naive enthusiasm, and I didn't want to to burden myself with too much, too many expectations. And looking back, do you think that was the right kind of decision? I'm always torn when I travel myself between reading ten books on the place or, or just jumping in and and wandering into the first into the first bar or or whatever. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was. It was. Um... I mean, I'm sure there's the stuff I missed because I didn't know it was there. But at the same time, it made me, it forced me to ask questions more. And like you say, to go into the nearest bar, meet a drunk farmer, and then try and extract some information from him, rather than having this, you know, research knowledge of, of what I was looking at and what I was seeing. And also I found that often people's stories are the most interesting thing, even if they're wrong. I mean, even if even if they they tell you, I don't know, they tell you a story about the castle up on the hill, which is likely completely historically unverified, um, mixed up with myth and legend. But for me, the, the 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 fact that they were telling that story was interesting in itself. You know, it says something about them. It says something about their their fears or their hopes or their idea of what the past was like. So it was, I mean, it was very, very subjective journey from all angles because I did rely on a lot of people um, telling me their version of the local story, their version of history. Which is, uh, I think you might have made the same point yourself somewhere in the book or, or maybe uh, I remembered it from elsewhere, but that is, you know, the, as real as, as a version of the story can get, right? The version that you're hearing from the person in the room is, is as real as it could be. Actually, you did mention this point. Someone suggested you, you Google or Wikipedia a particular story, and, and your argument was, well, actually, your version's as, as real as could ever, could ever be. Yeah, that, I mean, that was... It wasn't even a historical story they were telling me to, to Google. It was look on Wikipedia to look up the, the myth of, of when Siegfried killed the dragon and, and bathed himself in dragon's blood. And the guy started telling me this this wonderful myth. And then he kind of stopped and looked a bit embarrassed and said, oh, actually, I, I can't remember if that's correct. You should look it up on Wikipedia to get the true version. Which, of course, is, is completely ludicrous to get you know, the, the, 
true historical version of a man bathing in dragon's blood. <laughs> Absolutely. And as I said in as I said in the book, I'd much rather hear that story sitting around a wood burning stove with the rain coming down outside in someone's house rather than looking looking on Wikipedia you know, or anywhere else. And it really is the the characters that you encounter one of the many things that really stand out. There's a real contrast between that. You're you're alone in these mountains in Romania and don't speak enough of, of the local language very, very understandably to to communicate. But still when you do encounter people, um, you have these amazing like Budapest, you're there for three weeks, so I can relate very much relate to the experiences you had there, although I, I didn't have the dubious pleasure of a of a Victor Orban rally. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was interesting. When Patrick walked through the walked through Germany, it was as of course you know, just when the the Nazis were doing the speeches. I think he might have even even seen Hitler at, at one of his rallies. And I don't want to hyperbolize any anything that's happening in Europe now or when you walked there, but you, you definitely experienced some interesting political currents when you were there. Well, for sure. I mean, this is certainly. A current from of the far right that we're all very aware of in Hungary. I could see that very clearly with the um, with the Viktor Orbán rally, also with the, um, the 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 more far right youth movements who were you know, literally marching in 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 fascist uniforms and kind of black shirts and, and and combat boots and black caps and flags with runes on them. Um, and that's a more extreme example, but these currents are... I mean, also in, in Istanbul, with everything that's happened recently with the, you know, the attempted coup, and a year after I was in Istanbul, um, there, were the, there was the uprising against Erdogan's government that turned the city into a, into a war zone for, for a month. When I was there, people were telling me all of this stuff that would, I would later see in the news as kind of coming to fruition... But it's um, you never. It's strange. You never know. Just like Patrick didn't know what what would you know what these Nazis were going to turn into. You don't know if the person you're talking to is a bit paranoid, or they just have their own very particular political bias. But certainly, if, if enough people say the same thing, you kind of you know you can tell that something's up. Something's going on under the surface, which is probably going to emerge at some point in the future. And. Of course, uh, events have proved that that right in many aspects. It's interesting what you said uh, earlier this, earlier in this interview that if you walked the same route that you walked merely four years ago now, you'd probably have a very different experience. And I guess it made me think that Europe's possibly probably always been um, chaotic in some ways. It's never been a, 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 a paradise. And you're always going to have a, a new reality whenever you walk through it, shifting borders, shifting shifting narratives. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure, and that's the one of the kind of fascinating things about it is that every every walk would be completely different. Anyone doing what I did, leaving on the same day, would would have a completely different experience, different book, different set of encounters. And one of the things that kept on haunting me was this kind of fantasy that what would have happened if I'd set out a day before or a day later. Um, what would the book look like? It would be completely different. All people by different people have probably stayed in different places and had completely different stories emerging from that. 
That's an amazing thought, actually. Because, I mean, the same would be true of Patrick's journey or, or, or a similar one. You would have had encountered completely different people, um, had different weather, met different different characters. Yeah. But I guess you could call it the, the Patrick pilgrimage, this route that you retraced. Are you, as far as you're aware, are you, you one of the only people to have, to have done this recently? Or, or is this a thing that a lot of people have attempted? As far as I know... I'm the only one that has done the whole thing. I've, people have definitely done sections, or, or they've done variants. A lot of people, funnily, a lot of people have walked to Istanbul. Um, I, I keep on meeting them, it, it, completely unconnected to this. I've got a friend who, who also walked to Istanbul from Holland, but a completely different way. He went through the Balkans. And so it seems like there's kind of variants of this journey all over the place. And a lot of people as well... Um, when I when I, I think I, I might have mentioned this when we spoke before, I didn't realise when I started out that Patrick Lee Farmore has this um, almost cult following, and dozens and dozens of people have told me, in, with a sense of slight annoyance, I wanted to do that. I wanted to do that walk. I I, I had that dream, um, and so I, I had, was aware that a lot of people were kind of looking over my shoulder. With, with interest and slightly vicarious pleasure because it was something that a lot of people have, um, you know, this idea has occurred to them. Sure, but, I mean, you actually did it, right? Which is, is the only thing that actually, actually matters. Yeah. Yeah, you have, to, you have to do it. Yeah. Um, I think I was just in a position to... No, I was in a position to do it, and, and I knew that if I didn't do it then, I probably never would. So it had to, I had to start. So these these fans of of, of Patrick Lefermer, I mean, obviously, I, I've read um, the, the the two books he, he wrote entirely of his own right, and absolutely loved them. I was given a copy by my grandfather when I was twenty one. You you were handed a copy at eighteen, and I read them whilst traveling around Europe myself. And there really is a magical sort of thing there. But like, like you, I'm surprised to, or I had surprised to learn when I read your book about this sort of fanatical Patrick Lee Fermor, Fermor fan club. And what kind of evidence of that did you did you stumble upon? <laughs> um, well, funnily, I guess the, the kind of it ranged from English or British people who kind of grew up with his books or were aware of him as a as a great literary figure and a great you know, war hero, um, and this story of his life that is, is very charismatic and appealing. And then there were people living in the countries he wrote about for whom his writing has shed light on the past that they didn't know about before. And this was really interesting. I found this particularly in Romania, um, and actually all the, all, the, all the former Eastern Bloc countries. There's a, a kind of cultural amnesia from anything that happened before communism. Um, and I guess it's because people, the past is painful and the past is difficult and people, it's more comfortable not to think about that. And so these grand country houses, where the, the owners of the houses were dispossessed, you know, kicked out, sometimes executed, arrested, imprisoned, tortured, just disappeared. And then the building went to the state and often they were used for very good things, as I found. They were used for psychiatric hospitals. They were used for orphanages, um, 
public institutions for people that needed them and actually often run run quite well as far as I could work out from my kind of anecdotal knowledge but there was always this um this kind of general forgetfulness and I'd I'd ask people um you know what was this building before it was uh, a hospital and they'd kind of look a bit blank and they'd say oh I think it was owned by a an aristocrat and then I'd ask what happened to the what happened you know, what happened to this this person's family um and they'd say a bit euphemistically, oh, they decided to leave the country and, and donate the building to the state, which always sounded a little bit convenient. And so a lot of people, I think, were learning about the history of their own local, you know, their own communities through Patrick's books. They were seeing a side that they hadn't been taught in school um, and their families hadn't talked about because it was a bit uncomfortable. And he did really have a, a an amazingly magical quality to illuminate that history and that real energetic passion behind it, like a professor wandering through a museum, ripping off, riffing off every uh, item or, or every site or every village. I felt one of the many things your book did really well was to look back, maybe not as far, but just back towards Patrick's journey because the, the chasm there was the history of communism. And as you just mentioned, many of these grand houses were turned into mental hospitals were became and were themselves for Patrick they'd been evidence of this ancient history and for you they were just as uh, talismanic just as valuable as evidence of the history that had happened more recently yeah yeah absolutely Mick thank you so much for your time I don't want to keep you too long but one other thing I do want to just quickly ask you about is you you left a very sort of tantalizing hint at the start of your book that before attempting this, well, successfully uh, undertaking this walking uh, trip. You'd spent about 10 years uh, bouncing around the, the globe on, on airplanes. I'd like to hear what, what kind of journeys and adventures you had. If you, if you could uh, summarize 10 years of travel into a, into a witty uh, three-minute three minute soundbite. <laughs> well, I think it was, it was just this, this sense that, that I had before I did this journey that Europe wasn't very interesting, and all the interesting stuff lay in Mexico, Guatemala, where I spent about a year uh, working on organic farms and, and traveling from place to place um, and learning Spanish. And India, where I've been several times for journalism, actually, mostly. Um, and that's been um, writing about climate change in the Himalayas, writing about the impact of climate change on on Hindu beliefs, um, seeing you know, natural phenomenon that they see as manifestations of God being melted um, by warming temperatures or the, the, you know, the landscape and the climate changing. Um, Ethiopia was another, I spent um, half a year in Ethiopia teaching, getting these kids to produce a magazine of creative writing and journalism. So it was a mixture of journalism and teaching that took me from, from place to place, lived in various countries. And it, it really wasn't until I started remembering this old desire to do this walk that I actually started becoming interested in my own continent properly. You know, like I say, I always saw it as a, as a bit of a safe option, a bit dull, a bit familiar. And one of the greatest pleasures of the walk was that I discovered it's, you know, it's full of extraordinary, surprising things, you know, fascinating, fascinating cultures. 
it's the curse of, of most travelers to overlook uh, what's on their own doorstep, right? I think I was lucky enough to be from, from New Zealand, so, so most of the world is, is, is new to me. Yeah, of course. And final question, Mick, um, is you mentioned last time we spoke that you're writing on writing a new book. Could you let us know what's that about? Okay, yeah, well, I'm very happy to, to mention that briefly. It's, um, I'm just finishing it now. I'm just on the last chapter, so it's quite exciting to see it all come together. This is a another walking book, and again, I'm following in the pathway of something, but it's not a person. It is four winds. Um, so there's famous winds that blow through different parts of Europe, like the Mistral in the south of France, the Bora on the Adriatic coast, the Fern in the Alps, and the Helm, which is nor- England's only named wind, the Helm wind that blows in the, the northern Pennines. And so the idea with this book is to is to walk the pathways of the wind and talk to people and write about how they affect culture, how they affect mythology, psychology often, because people experience all kinds of often negative symptoms, with tales of madness and psychosis and depression and anxiety that the winds cause. Um, or else they, they bring people, you know, they ripen the grapes, they ripen the corn, they dry out all the bad weather. So often there's good things too. Uh, and their effects are in architecture, they're in um, all, all kinds of things. They permeate every aspect of life. So I've been doing these these four walks, and it's a book about how the wind affects the world. Sounds amazing. I can't, can't wait to read it. Well, it's a it's, uh, working title, Where the Wild Winds Are, and it's going to be published uh, not for a while. It's going to be out in September 2017, so bit of a wait. All right, so, so just over a year, a year to wait. Just over a year, yeah. All right, good on you, Nick. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed the interview. I enjoyed talking to you. Thanks a lot. Hey, folks, Nathan Thomas here. Thank you very much for listening. To be notified when the next interview or story is live, be sure to like Intrepid Times on Facebook and keep up with us at intrepidtimes.com. And Nick's book, Walking the Woods and the Water, is available on Amazon and should be accessible, as they say, in good bookstores everywhere. Thank you very much.